You're listening to the Meditation and Attachment Podcast with George Haas. For more information, please visit our website at www.metagroup.org. That's www.m-e-t-t-a-g-r-o-u-p.org. So welcome, everybody. It is May 6, 2021 at 7.35 p.m. Um, Pacific Daylight Time. This is meditation and attachment, the DYP or deepening your practice series. And um, uh, tonight I was going to continue on from where I was talking last time about uh, the uh, process of uh, clearing out a lot of the conditioning so that you can then uh, focus your practice on, on liberation. I thought that I would talk about uh, uh, emotion and emotion regulation is as as one of those uh, um, necessary, uh, um, it occurred to me um, to call it a preliminary practice, uh, even though uh, in the Western traditions I've come up in, we didn't really uh, do much of that. The um, I like to talk about emotion and emotion regulation because uh, oftentimes, when we go into the a deeper side of practice, experiences come up which create an emotional reaction uh, that we ne- then need to be able to regulate. And if we're not able to do that well, then the emotional dysregulation that comes from the practice derails the practice. And, and if it isn't really well organized, what can happen is that in order to avoid the, the emotional dysregulation, you stop practicing. Which Slows everything down. Um, I tend to teach a metta vipassana uh, as a way of uh, coping with that. Um, when you go into the insight practice, and uh, particularly if it uh, uh, it uh, upsets the the narrative that you hold about uh, the experience of your life, which can happen uh, easily enough, uh, the reaction to that. Uh, creates this emotional response that, that, that needs to be managed. Um, the better you are at managing it, of course, the, the, the speedier the, the trip is, uh, because you can go through some of these uh, uh, emotional experiences that are difficult, um, and they don't uh, knock everything over. Um, part of the way that I frame this is uh, um, the idea that you, you can see yourself clearly, you know yourself well, and you're able to express your experience uh, in an authentic way. Uh, sometimes we talk about uh, this in terms of Grice's maxims. Uh, Grice was a philosopher who, who worked out of the University of California, Berkeley, and uh, one of his subjects was investigating the nature of human conversation and uh, he uh, devised these four maxims that govern human co- uh, conversation. You may have already recognized that we're highly moral creatures and that we have uh, these moral codes that we operate from. And if somebody violates our moral code, we tend to be outraged by that. Um, and. Uh, if you have good clarity about what's happening and you have a sense of the violations that are happening as you're attempting to relate to somebody, 
you can make sense out of that and, and uh, monitor and manage the outrage uh, more effectively than if you don't understand really what's setting you off and you just have these uh, reactions. So we're looking for this clarity that might be there. The first one is a quality so that you, uh, you're uh, truthful and you're complete and you're concise in the content that you're delivering. The second one is quantity. You're neither too brief nor too long. And this is in terms of monitoring <coughs> the way that that communication is landing with the person that you're communicating with so that you're complete, uh, you're truthful, uh, and there's some attention to whether or not the way that you're delivering it is communicating it. And quantity is one of those. I live in Los Angeles and so, uh, and I worked in the entertainment business. And one of the things you may know about uh, crews once they set up is that they have a game called Hacky Sack that they play quite a bit, which is a small uh, crocheted uh, um, pouch that's filled with uh, sand or something like that. And it's kicked and you kick it up and then it goes to somebody else in the circle and they kick it up and then it goes to somebody else in the circle and they kick it up. And that's actually what human conversation is like, this back and forth. So that if you don't uh, um, take up your uh, part and, uh, and, and support the conversation, it's as if the hacky sack comes to you and you just let it fall. Or if you dominate the conversation by talking too much, it's as if you grab the hacky sack and hold on to it. Anything like that, of course, breaks down the flow of the conversation. So it's this constant rhythm, this back and forth. Um, the third one is called manner. And what manner means is that you match the energy of the other person and also that the way that you're communicating it is orderly and understandable, not um, confusing or uh, uh, riddle-like. And then the last one is uh, relevancy. You stay on the topic that's been agreed upon between the people that are talking or do you change it? Um, this is the basis of understanding uh, people's attachment strategies, the, the violations or the compliance with these maxims. And uh, uh, so uh, in developing a narrative that's coherent about yourself and uh, your experiences, paying attention to those can be a good indicator of what's happening uh, in terms of your experience of being in relationship to other people. I'm talking about relationships um, and I started talking about emotional regulation. Um, and the reason that I'm uh, connecting these two is because the, the best a way of emotionally regulating yourself is in relationship to other people. Uh, we, ha we have a capacity to be regulated by other people and other people have a capacity to be being re emotionally regulated by us. And this is largely an unconscious and automatic experience. So one of the things to begin to pay attention to is whether you find somebody emotionally regulating they don't really do much one way or the other, or you find somebody emotionally dysregulated. 
Um, we want to develop mastery in being able to regulate our own emotions, but at the same time, understand that a collaborative relationship around emotional regulation is uh, the best choice. And that as we uh, develop our practice, we probably uh, could benefit from establishing relationships with other practitioners that are emotionally regulating so that you have the capacity to go deep and not be frightened by uh, the potential uh, emotional reaction to what you discover in your practice. That makes sense, I think. Uh, the poly, uh, the poly word for that is sangha. Uh, in the West, we often use sangha as a description of the fellow practitioners, but uh, in the traditional sense, it's just referring to the monastic community and lay people are not part of that. But as lay practitioners, the idea then is to uh, have at least some uh, uh, relational connection to other people who practice meditation. Without that, it's very difficult to go too deep into practice. Uh, part of it is how do you describe the experiences that you're having? And one way to do this is to have a group of people that you can uh, open up to and, and talk about the experiences that you're having um, in a way that uh, allows you to make sense of them and uh, understand how to communicate them. Um, it's an interesting thing for me. Uh, I'm sitting in a, in a, in a Tibetan uh, meditation community, having spent most of my meditation practice life in uh, the Theravada community. And the way that uh, meditation experience is described in the Tibetan world is, is really quite foreign to me. I'm used to kind of a straight up Burmese style this happened, then this happened, then this happened, then this happened. And the language of uh, Tibetan Buddhism is very flowery. I like to call it flowery, flowery. It's very fantastic. Uh, uh, and uh, in a way that I don't understand most of the time what people are talking about, because it isn't descriptive in the way that I'm used to thinking of these things. Um, and so uh, I'll have to see how that develops if it does. I, I, I have such a solid preference for the, this happened, then this happened, then this happened, then this happened, rather than um, what seems like an, an, an extraordinary string of adjectives <laughs> that don't actually apply to anything. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so I like to talk about four kinds of emotions that it's important to be able to regulate the reaction to the present moment that tends to play out on the surface face, front of the throat, front of the torso, inside of the arms, inside of the legs, it's a vibratory energy. First, we make a discernment uh, as to whether it's an emotional experience or not, and then attempt to discern which particular emotional flavor it is. Anger, fear, sadness, excitement, say, are the base emotions. Love, joy, bliss, humor, interest, loneliness, longing, guilt, shame, regret, remorse, and so on. In the English language, there are 220 words that describe discrete emotional states. And uh, actually, it's a low number. Other languages uh, have many more words to describe emotional uh, reactions. 
part of the thought process is emotional. In the West, we think of it as uh, reason and emotion separately, and reason is valued at a higher level than emotion is. But if you look at that, this through an evolutionary lens, emotion uh, probably preceded reason. Um, and also, if there's a strong emotional reaction, it tends to have a negative effect on your ability to reason. In fact, you, know, you could get so emotionally <coughs> activated that uh, reason shuts down altogether. Your cognitive mind shuts off and you're just responding emotionally, um, responding from procedure or um, conditioned memory. The next one is the somaticized emotion experience, the old stuff. So if you uh, think about it in terms of uh, a system, you react to the present moment. If there, the reaction exceeds your capacity to tolerate that experience, there's an emotional event that needs to be regulated, which we tend to regulate by thinking. Um, so the mind generates a thought, a repetitive thought, to regulate the experience of the present moment. And if you're conditioned to use uh, afflictive emotion as the way of regulating the experience of the present moment, then the mind generates intense afflictive emotional states. Um, and it can actually, through thinking, generate such intensely afflictive states that it overwhelms the system and that, that whole process is then shut down and uh, stuck into the body for later processing. So that's the somaticized emotional experience. So that if you have uh, a skill set uh, that generates a lot of afflictive emotion uh, in, in the process of regulating, you probably also have a lot of somaticized emotional experience that then re reacts to the conditions of the present moment. Why it's important to have clarity with this is that if something happens in the present moment uh, and activates an experience of sadness and you have a sadness pool and the sadness pool activates, you don't have good clarity then you think that the conditions of the present moment are creating this intense experience of sadness. So let's say the present moment you react with uh, three points of sadness, but it activates the pool that then releases five points. Uh, are you then thinking that the conditions of the present moment are generating eight points of sadness? And then do you attempt in the actions that you take in response to that to change the conditions of the present moment to relieve the sadness and then find yourself disappointed or unsatisfied with that reaction because it actually only relieves three points of sadness because you don't have an understanding or clarity around uh, the uh, old stuff. It also consumes a ton of energy to hold that, waiting for later processing. So if you attend to it, uh, it releases uh, that somaticized emotional experience and you get more and more energy back. Uh, and it is a lot of energy. Uh, and so if you can do that and uh, do it in a judicious way, uh, there's more and more energy available for <coughs> all of the explorations in your life, including your meditation practice. And then the last piece of emotion is the uh, empathetic experience of other people. In Buddhist practice, we talk a lot about compassion practice, which is an empathetic experience. If you don't have good clarity around your empath uh, 
empathetic experience, it's much harder to hold a compassionate response to the experience of other people's suffering. If you don't have good clarity between your own emotional states and the emotional states of other people, uh, you can be much more easily emotionally dysregulated by the experience of engaging in the practice of compassion. In, in Buddhist thought, compassion is, uh, is narrowly focused around the suffering experience of someone else. This is different than the Western idea of compassion, which is simply the the capacity to share all emotional experiences with uh, other people. <coughs> so compassion, you have the capacity to empathetically engage with someone else. The first, I like to talk about it in three levels. And uh, I don't know, 10 or 15 years ago when I started talking about this uh, and you did a Google search, uh, a, a three-point model would come up, but it's since fallen out of favor. So if you type uh, what is uh, empathy in, in Google, you'll get a five-pointer, eight or 10 point. Um, I don't like to talk about it in that way because I, I want it to be simple to explain and, uh, and practical. So the first level of empathy is this automatic uh, experience uh, of, I like to use the word whingy, a whinginess around the witnessing of somebody else's physical or emotional pain. There's a, a reaction to it. The second is that you can look at somebody else and read their facial expressions and their body language and understand that that's a representation of their internal experience. And the third level is this compassionate empathy where you actually feel in your body a facsimile of the experience of the other person. If you open up to the experience of emotion and you, you train yourself to really be able to detect that, then the empathetic experience uh, is, it becomes quite clear. And if you don't do that, you may have difficulty in connecting into that embodied sense of emotion. Uh, a lot of us get very cognitive, and so we can uh, manage the second level of empathy of reading people's body language and facial expressions that have a hard time uh, touching into the <coughs> actual embodied experience. Um, one of the things about exploring is that if you take a lot of risk in exploring, it can be emotionally uh, dysregulating. And so what you need around you are people that are compassionate and can hold that experience of your suffering and help you regulate. So as you put together your sangha to support your practice, you want to pay attention to the capacity of uh, compassion in the people that you're picking so that you can really go for it in your practice and that you have then people around you who will help you if it becomes too dysregulating. I spoke a little earlier today about, or in, in this talk about the metavipassana approach uh, in developing the loving kindness mind state, the capacity for that, and to use it as a, as a high concentration practice 
uh, you can develop a, a, a refuge in, in positive states to hold the dysregulated state that might arise in your uh, insight practice until you settle so that you can keep active in the practice and that that doesn't slow down or stop um, simply by switching from the insight practice to the heart practice. And then when you've settled, go back into uh, the insight practice. So it doesn't become a spiritual bypass in the sense that you're focusing exclusively on positivity, but it becomes a useful strategy for being able to go fearlessly into the insight side of practice, because you know that no matter what happens there, if you have uh, the capacity to withdraw into this uh, positive uh, experience and use that as a, uh, 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 a place to hold uh, the practice, and then you put around yourself uh, uh, people who are capable of emotionally regulating you, then in this process of uh, your own self-mastery at regulating your emotions and having uh, people that you can collaborate with in terms of emotionally balancing, then you really do develop this sense of fearlessness in, in being able to pursue uh, practice. <clears throat> we, we, uh, I don't know um, whether you've heard this before, but I certainly hear it quite a bit is this, uh, the dark night of the soul experience that comes from the positive. Dark night of the soul, of course, is a Christian term uh, that uh, uh, came out of uh, uh, sort of um, our early Christian uh, meditative practice. The Buddhist term is knowledge of the miseries, and and uh, what they mean by the miseries are, are the the three characteristics: not self, impermanence, and uh, unsatisfactoriness. And this uh, um, always excites in my mind this idea of authenticity. Um, people who are able to be authentic, that is to say, express themselves uh, uh, clearly, uh, completely, truthfully, uh, tend to have an easier time uh, at, at that process than people who are very inauthentic. Uh, there's no um, fault really in this because so much of those skill sets are, are come from the very earliest uh, conditioning. Um, and part of this is to be able to examine how uh, your early life affected you and what uh, strategies for being in the world it, it gave you so that you can begin to develop the skills that you might need uh, to support this uh, deeper practice. I like to talk about it through an attachment lens because uh, it's so descriptive and, and it communicates these complex ideas to people in a way that uh, is easily recognizable. Secure people tend to be able to be authentic. In fact, uh, they don't tend to be, don't tend to have the skill set of 
inauthenticity because it was never something that they needed to develop. They grew up in family systems where the way that they were was considered delightful and their actual interests were supported and encouraged. And so their experience of being in the world has always been that I express myself authentically and that's the best way to get my needs met. And then as you move out from that, uh, the early attachment condition changes the way that uh, people's capacity for authenticity uh, is developed. Uh, and mainly uh, what happens is uh, that because the way that the child was in that family system wasn't what was wanted by that family system, the capacity for inauthenticity was developed uh, and uh, to varying degrees. Uh, it can get to be so uh, preferred in the family system that the capacity for authenticity is undeveloped or very rudimentary and the elaborate nature of the inauthenticity is, is quite uh, developed. As you move deeper into practice, of course, the, the ability to uh, pretend, the ability to be inauthentic uh, comes under increasing pressure. And I think that really one of the things that happens in the knowledge of the miseries or the, the dark night is that you see through uh, the, um, the, your own capacity for inauthenticity into the, the true self or the authentic self. And uh, it makes it much, much harder to continue with the inauthentic expressions. If it were just you and you weren't actually engaged in the world in any way, uh, had no relationships, this would be less of a problem. But if you have built relationships and uh, a work life and a way of being in the world that largely depends on your inauthenticity and you can no longer perform in an inauthentic way, how do you maintain all of those structures that you have in place? And so it can get extraordinarily disruptive, particularly if the experiences are deep enough that you, you can't really do the uh, inauthenticity anymore at all and all of the relationships that you have require it as a, as a way of uh, you know, keeping cohesion. And so things begin to come apart and then there's a lot of uh, a rancor or um, a lot of fearfulness in uh, the experience of that. So I like to say, in order to avoid that, just start now attempting to be as authentic as you can and un undo the, the uh, training around inauthenticity and uh, in these small ways, be able to uh, learn to regulate that experience in such a way that you're freer and freer to be authentic. Uh, so that when you get into these uh, uh, later stages of, of practice, it's not so disruptive. So these four levels of emotion, the emotional reaction to the present moment, the emotion that's generated by thinking, the empathetic experience, and the somaticized emotional experiences are all things that you want clarity with. 
and that you can manage in real time. Um, and then building this, uh, um, this uh, Sangha, your personal uh, support team that, that is gonna be supportive and encouraging of practice, then sets you up to be able to really go deeply into the practice and, uh, and that if you're not able to do that, then the, the experience of practice uh, can be uh, difficult and, and uh, you can intentionally slow it down so that you can manage these things that come up. It takes a lot of energy and a lot of time to regulate yourself uh, outside uh, uh, regulating relationships, much more time and energy. When we're born, we're all basically auto-regulators. We don't have the capacity really to experience other people or take them in. Um, and then as the brain develops uh, and that capacity develops, we enter into a relationship with somebody, with a caregiver who comes reliably enough. And then we become more externally focused on, on the caregiver regulating us. Of course, if you grow up in a family system where nobody comes regularly enough to uh, uh, take care of you, then you remain an auto-regulator. So the idea there is to then change your mind about the reliability of other people and be willing to open to the to your authentic expression with them so that you can uh, be in relationship to them. If you uh, have somebody who comes regularly enough and reliably enough to get you to depend on them uh, to regulate, but not reliably enough that you can actually uh, count on them and engage in a collaborative exchange with them, then you, you remain an external regulator and you're dependent on other people to help you emotionally regulate. Um, if that's the case, then you, you're often going to be limited in terms of how far you can go in practice because practice is really a solo exploration. You can't practice uh, uh, in, uh, in a group. <coughs> you can sit in a group, and everybody is doing their solo exploration, but you can't uh, practice as a, a group, a team. If somebody comes regularly enough and they help you regulate uh, and uh, you can collaborate with them, then uh, you can learn from them how to regulate. You can develop those skills so that you can use them independent of the other person uh, and you can come and go from them. And that's the place to really get to where uh, the capacity to uh, regulate is uh, both something that you can do on your own and in a collaborative relationship with someone else. Then uh, you have everything in place that you need to then pursue uh, meditation um, uh, from the skill side and then uh, what you will need is the teacher or the teachings that uh, allow or help guide you in, in, in what to explore. Um, I like uh, Dharma maps and uh, so, and in particular, uh, the, the description that Mahasi Sayadaw gives of the 16 stages of 
enlightenment he calls the progress of insight uh, is the map that I mostly talk about because uh, before I knew about the map, that matched the experience I had so that when I found the map, uh, it was very easy to relate to it because it was basically the experiences that I had based on the practice that I was doing. One of the things to understand is that maps are developed and practices are associated with the maps. And so if you follow the, the map and practice in the way it's described, you tend to have the insights that match the map because uh, uh, the techniques are devised to illustrate uh, the, the, the insight that they're describing and want you to, to be able to take on. So there's a lot of different maps. The Tibetan map is quite different. The, the lineages in Tibetan practice are different. Uh, Dan, my, my teacher, uh, that uh, lineage is a remade teacher, which is a, which is a uh, sub-lineage of the Bon tradition. And that map is both very much the same as the Theravada map and in some sense quite different because the practices that they use and the insights that they're asking you to understand are quite different. But in, in the end describe uh, this similar capacity to really be in the experience of the present moment and simply allow it to arise and pass without clinging to it, to see deeply into the understanding that the self is not substantial, that there is a self-experience, but it's a sensing experience, not different from other experiences in that, also is not uh, something that you cling to, and that you then <coughs> live in a human body, which will grow old, get sick and die, and there's nothing that you can do about that. But sometimes you get what you want, but you end up losing it because everything is impermanent. Sometimes you don't get what you want. Sometimes you have to put up with things that you don't want. And, and then there's that subtle constant irritation that nothing is quite the way that you would have it if you were actually in charge of anything. And then <clears throat> deeply integrating those understandings so that that becomes the expectation. And that often puts us into conflict with the way uh, we were conditioned to expect things to unfold. And there's that uh, suffering that arises from uh, the expectation that things be different than, the, than they are, or preference for things being different than they are, and shifting into the place where you see uh, unequivocally how things are and then come into this place of deep acceptance, which tends to open up this ease, this, this uh, freedom, where you can actually be present for everything as it comes and goes, uh, and then respond in, in a way that's really skillful. And that makes things easier and easier over time as you go along. <coughs> so I started talking about emotional regulation and I thought what we would do tonight is a, a more uh, uh, um, a further investigation of emotional regulation. 
than we did uh, last week. Um, and I don't want to say too much about it. I just want to take you through it and see how well you do. Any questions before we begin? So go ahead and take your meditation posture. So any comments or questions about what we just did? Um, could you elaborate more on present moment emotion and where it comes from, what it is exactly, just a more in-depth explanation of present moment emotion? Well, present moment emotion is usually a part of the intention action process. So the object that can be sensed needs the capacity to sense when, they, when there's contact, the consciousness of that sensing experience arises. It's evaluated for processing speed, vagueness, the poly word for that. It's then compared to the perceptual database. And uh, if there's a close enough match, then the, the meaning that's already in the database is associated with the present moment and ultimate reality becomes conceptual reality. Um, if there isn't a close enough match, then the imagination uh, defines what the meaning of that uh, experience is. And then part of the final process of that is the intention uh, of the response and then the action that you take in response to it. And then the collection of what happens uh, in reaction to the action that you take. The, once the intention begins to form, the body begins to change the, uh, the uh, orientation of it so that it's able to take the action. And so what we call emotion is that the physiological changes in the body as it's preparing to take an action. So if the action is to run away, all the blood flows into the legs, there's a massive blast of adrenaline, a massive blast of endorphins so that you can run. And if your, your legs get cut up from the, the grass that you're running through or the brush that you're running through, you don't notice the pain until after that blast of fear is dropped away. If it's fight, all the blood rushes into the body, into the upper body, into the arms. Uh, there's a, a more adrenaline, more endorphins, uh, and then you're prepared to fight. If it's a sadness, then all the blood rushes out of the limbs of the body into the organs of the body so that, the, the, that you can be still. And so we then uh, learn these patterns of movement in terms of the body preparing to take an action and then we call them by the, the emotional name. Good enough? So if I'm understanding correctly, there's components of thinking that are involved. They're just not this repeated perseverating. Or it might be associated thinking, but it's not. It's, uh, it's I, like know, spontaneous. Right. I take you in a very linear way through this, starting with thinking. Um, so that you can see the process, but it's omnidirectional from any sense gate and any sense gate can initiate the flow of reaction. 
So it's easier to see it in one direction. Uh, and then once you recognize the pattern and be able to watch for the whole uh, you know, mix that can arise. Good. Someone else? Something else. <coughs> All right, well, thank you for your practice. I really appreciate you coming. Um, our level two class that's starting uh, in May is full. And so uh, we put up a waiting list for a class that will start in September. Um, we're going to have a uh, retreat in June. Um, it's virtual, so uh, if you want to sign up for that, it's, uh, there's some spaces left there. Um, in July, I'm going to start a series of day-longs for level one, uh, so meditation and attachment level one. And then um, in September, we'll uh, do the, uh, the, the level two class. <coughs> it turns out that uh, we think the world is going to open up. And so I'm going to go traveling in the fall. Um, and uh, so I won't uh, initiate the Dharma Mats class that we were going to, to do because that falls right in the middle of it. But then I will be back in time for the, the year-end retreat, which we're hoping to do uh, actually uh, in person. <laughs> but it will depend on how uh, the pandemic uh, uh, unfolds. Um, so that's the rest of the schedule for the year. I offer the teaching freely, but I do hope that you'll make a donation to support me and also the work that Metagroup is doing. There's links on the website for donation or in the email that you might have received about the class. Thank you for coming and we'll see you uh, next time or on the path somewhere. Be well. <laughs>